Yo, it's Spike. Welcome to the very first and Yo, it's Spike. Welcome to the very first episode of the Carl Landry Record Club. I appreciate you listening. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if for some reason you're listening to this and you're not already subscribed. On today's episode, we talk about the albums Donny Hathaway's Live, Silverchair's Diorama, and Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. If you would like to if you would like to suggest an album, just leave us if you'd like to suggest an album, just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars wouldn't help, but leave the name of the artist and the album in the review along with your name, and we could select yours for a future episode. We'll be doing this once. We'll be doing this pod once per week next week with three more albums and an interview with Philly's own Devin Gilfillian. Before we get going officially, I'd like to thank Marion Hill, a awesome Philly duo who donated this song to be our official opening theme music, which will be in this pod from now until forever. So thanks so much to Marion Hill. If you get a chance, look them up on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your music. Without any further ado, Marion Hill. First edition of the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. Um, I'm Spike, and that's Mootloo. Yo, yo. Here we are. It's our first podcast together. We've been talking about this for like weeks now. Man, debut, man. It's good. Good. Feels good. Feels good to be getting it going. Might might even uh, might even be weeks before this even comes out. To be honest with you, <laughs> the world could be c- completely different. We could be in the midst of a second uh, dis- like pandemic by the, oh, by the time this comes out. So uh, so so what this came of? If this is the first time you're listening, and you you uh, maybe you don't listen to the Ricky, or you ch- checked out of the rights to Ricky Sanchez while there was no basketball going on, is that in the middle of the COVID era. Uh, we had to fill all this time on our basketball podcast when there was no basketball. And I asked Mike, my my co-host on that podcast, if we could review an album every week. And he came up with the name Carl Landry Record Club. Carl Landry was on the Sixers for one year. I don't know why he named it after Carl Landry. He didn't have any records when he was with the Sixers, but that's what we called. And we had listeners send in... Um, different suggestions of what we should listen to and we would listen to it and talk about it. The problem became is that even though Mike likes music a lot, he actually doesn't have anything to say about music. Uh, is what he said. He, he doesn't know what to say. He just says whether he liked it or not. And then basketball came back and I wanted to keep doing it. And I reached out to Mootloo to see if he wanted to do it. And then here we are. It's a beautiful thing, man. It is beautiful. And it's been a kind of an arc because, uh, you know, um, both Amos and I have made appearances together. I know he's made many, and then we uh, had appearances together. Yeah. Um, as ourselves and our alter egos. Yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, but um, it feels like a natural progression to, uh, you know, to, to do something like this. Because I know you're a sports guy, but you're equally a music guy. And the same holds true for me, I would say. I'm a music guy who um, is also obsessed with sports. So there's a nice synergistic kind of thing there, I think. Well, I think there's always been a thing. And by the way, I think, so I was a music guy first and then became a sports guy. 
Um, like I've worked in music radio for 15 years, uh, and I worked in music radio one, because I love radio, but two, because the idea of working in music radio, the reason I liked it, the reason I ever wanted to do it in the first place was I like, I liked telling somebody about something that was good and having them hear it. Like that, that was the coolest thing to me about radio was the idea that I could find a record that people liked. Like I remember when I became a music director and I got to pick a song to put on the radio and the, just the idea that I could I could pick something that I knew was good and that other people would like it was the coolest thing in the world to me. So. That's incredible. That and it's amazing. That's no matter how much um, the music business changes, that element that you're talking about that never changes. Uh, and there is just the power of radio, whether it's radio, podcast, whatever. There's something mm-hmm. about discovery of the first time somebody hears something. And it and and it hits them. And I mean, I still that's still there's nothing really like that when you hear a song, you're like, whoa, what is this? Yeah, and rem- to be behind the scenes and orchestrating that, that's got to be an amazing feeling. I mean, well, I I uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, when I got into radio, it was the beginning of the end of when you could even do that. And I I had like opportunities from when I worked at WYSP. Like I remember we got to add, there's a metal band called Kill Switch Engage that never got played on the radio before. And I was like, nah, we're going to play this. And then when I moved to Chicago, I got to do it with Andrew McMahon and that sort of stuff. But like I got there right at the very end of when you could even do that, which is what sort of um, drove me out of that. Just not because I I have any less respect for it to what music radio does now. It's just a different thing. It wasn't what I got into it for. Um, But I remember, it's funny, it's not even a a radio thing. That sensation that you're talking about, like the what is this, the oh my God. There's a a band that you're probably not familiar, we'll we'll do them at some point on this pod called uh, The Front Bottoms. And um, one of my favorite bands is this band Brand New. And I took my wife to a show. They did a couple of shows, I don't know, maybe five years ago, where they did one show in Long Island uh, and one show in North Jersey. And they had four albums at the time. And they did two of their albums at each concert. Hmm. And I went to both shows. I went to the Long Island one. But the Long Island one, they did their two later albums. So it wasn't quite as popular. And then I went to the North Jersey one. And everyone, like you can imagine, a show like this, everyone is there for brand new. That's who they're there for. Like, that's all they want to see. Right. So this band opens up called the Front Bottoms that are from Jersey. And everyone went apeshit, which was a signal to me at a brand new show that there was something special. But it was literally, this was the best feeling. It was maybe 10 seconds into the first song. I looked at my wife and I said, these guys are fucking awesome. <laughs> like, and all I could think about after seeing them was going back and finding the records and listening to them. But that, that sensation of like, not only did I find a new band that I like, but oh my God, this might be one of my favorite bands. And I've only heard them for 10 seconds so far was such a, an awesome feeling. That's amazing too. And you know, like, uh, like getting back, getting back to what you were saying before, a lot of things change, but that feeling and then the desire you have to share that with other people Mm -hmm. that is still the biggest marketing tool in music i don't care how much money labels or marketing firms or whatever throw at something when something is undeniable Mm -hmm. and people have that type of reaction like like you had that night at that show that um that there's that still can transcend a band that doesn't have a big push 
Right. Uh, when you see groups that, that sell a lot of tickets um, or that just build this huge online presence, but they don't necessarily have the machine behind them. Mm-hmm. That thing that we're talking about, that's always at the, at the core of that because if something's transcendent, if it's undeniable, you'll share with 10 other people and then they'll have the same experience and it'll, it'll just exponentially grow from there. So that's, that's, that's still the power of music that never changes. I guess that's kind of what keeps me in it in a lot of ways, uh, amongst other things. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I remember the first time I went to a dashboard confessional show. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, what, what is this? And actually, the the so what we're gonna do on the because I, I I wanted to ask you a couple of things, but like what what we're gonna do on the pod in general is in the spirit of the original Carl Landry Record Club, which I never honestly <laughs> the only reason I wanted to do the Carl Landry Record Club in the first place was because I wanted to do the albums that I liked and make everybody listen to them. <laughs> there you go. But we immediately transitioned it into listener albums, which was fine, but not really what I wanted to do. So so what we'll do on the pod is I'll pick like an album that I love and that Moot doesn't know and, and we'll listen to it and talk about it. Moot will pick an album uh, that he loves and I'll listen to it. We'll talk about that. And then we'll get one from a listener. So if you have a listener request, if you want, this is a, a fun trick that I'm going to do. Uh, if, if you're listening to the pod, you want, you want us to listen to one of the albums, go to Apple Podcasts, find uh, the pod, leave a review and tell us which album you want us to leave in your review and leave five stars or we're not going to pick the album. So leave five-star rating, and then a review with the album you want us to listen to, and then we'll pick one of those. So we're going to do that today. We're going to listen to an album I like, an album you like, um, that that relates to this dashboard thing, and we'll talk to it when we get to it, and we'll pick an album we never got to from the Ricky. Um, I was going to ask, as a musician and a, uh, you know, formerly and hopefully once again touring musician when that gets real again, you haven't lost any of the because sports for me is way different now now that I work in it right. than it was when I started. I, I don't I enjoy it. I don't cheer in the same way. It, do, it hmm. doesn't it doesn't affect me in the same way. Music in the same way affects you now as when you started. Or, or no, I can no. relate to what you're saying there. Uh, being in the music business, I guess I can compartmentalize it. the The aspect that I love the most, which fortunately for so many of us now we can't do is being on stage and connecting uh, with an audience. I mean, I always enjoy it. You know, some nights are better than others, mm-hmm. but those nights where there's that magic that happens where you just make that connection with the audience, uh, there's nothing I can compare that to. Uh, when the show's just clicking, you're feeling good, and there's just so much engagement there. That's what I love about it. I, I That's my favorite part of it, singing, performing, being on the road. Um, and then I enjoy, although it feels more like work sometimes, the writing and the recording side of it, I enjoy that too. Everything creative, but I will say the business side of it does oh, it's terrible. threaten to ruin your enjoyment of it at times. And I would not even say at times, often, um, because I went through the whole experience of being on a label, getting signed as a big company. Um, it was a sort of subsidiary of a big company and... I did an EP and an album with them, and it was good at first. I had great people, uh, on, you know, on board, and they all got fired because <laughs> the uh, the parent company was bought out. And uh, you know, I went through that whole experience that so many artists have had, where you go from being excited, like you're you're kind of making your major label debut, and it's like, oh, it's all everything's clicking at this group of people, A and R people, marketing people, publicity people, 
on board, and then in one fell swoop, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, uh, I guess that was about uh, nine, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, and it was kind of early. I had already been touring, playing some shows, but that was a wake-up call of just how brutal <laughs> the music business is. Because I went from being someone that I felt was really embraced that they were championing to suddenly like, oh, we don't know if your record's going to come out. Right. But when it, when, when it does come out, there's not going to be any push behind it. You're on yeah, your own. Yeah, we're not going to do anything. We're yeah. not going to do anything. Oh, and by the way, you'll never be able to own the master again. Yeah. Which I still don't. So uh, that was harsh. That took me a while to um, regroup from. And, you know, there's other experiences of trying to make a living, making money, um, the business side can threaten your enjoyment. It sounds like it's happened to you with sports a little bit. Uh, well, it's just the minute that you have to, there's a, just an enormous difference between want to and have to. Right. And the, <laughs> the, the, the minute that you take want to and make it have to, it's just if the, the second that you don't have, you don't have the ability to opt out or your, your rent or your mortgage depends on it. It's just a different thing. You right. Know? Right. It's, it's, it's never going to be just that pure unadulterated joy. Yeah. Of, of being part of it uh, because suddenly there's sort of life consequences if things don't go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow sometimes. But for me, it's like I've been doing it so long, pretty much my whole adult life. I don't know what else I would do. So it's kind of like when you look at it that way, then you're like, all right, well, I'm just going to weather the storm and take the hits. And you do develop a thick skin over time. But there, you have to be careful, I find, with music. Like, when you're performing, when you're writing, when you're doing something creative, you have to get to a place where you shut all that other stuff out. If you allow it to make you feel bitter about the actual creative side of it, I've seen it happen to some other artists where they they leave, they stop, you know, because they just get so disillusioned by everything that goes into it, everything that, um, all the pitfalls of the business. And that's a slippery slope and it's not an easy way to make a living. I mean, it's not just really, really tough. Well, the, the, uh, and it it's everybody i mean not the the giant major labels but like even the venues you know having having gotten into that a little bit and understanding what like i'm not talking about like amphitheaters or whatever but you're talking about like you know 300 to 2000 seaters or even mm-hmm. 5000 seaters like a lot of those shows whether they make money or not is like a gamble Oh, like, yeah. you know what I mean? And not even the artist. I'm, I'm not talking about the artist. I'm talking about the actual venue and the promoter and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's a tough business in a lot of ways that the, um, you know, the internet changed forever. The only thing I hope now, obviously, you know, the internet took away revenue. Artists don't make money, just in case anybody's listening and you can confirm like artists don't really make money from streaming unless you're no. fucking Taylor <laughs> Swift or something. So, so every time you think that your Spotify 1099 is going to the artist, it's like, it's if, if what I try to tell people is if these companies paid what it would take to actually pay the artists for the streaming, then the subscription would be 10 times what it costs. You, right. you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get every record in the history of music for $10 a month. That's just, <laughs> that, 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 like, it doesn't, it doesn't, the math doesn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when, yeah. when people were paying $15 for one album and now they're paying $10 a month for every everything album in the history of music, right. it right. just doesn't add up. <laughs> um, but, uh, so like the, the, the music industry went through that sort of thing and it just became, you know, merch and touring and licensing, that became the the way to make money. And now that touring is gone, 
uh, at least for now, like I would hope, and this is for somebody who's, you know, rent and mortgage doesn't depend on it, but like, I would hope that this time, like somehow something comes of this that provides a revenue stream that nobody ever thought of before. That is like an additional to shows that comes back in six months or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting, and I, I wonder, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of it that way necessarily. Like, is will there be some new platform or some mm-hmm. kind of means? Um, because right now, the whole touring business is in an existential crisis. I mean, yeah. uh, there's, um, and it sadly, it doesn't look like there's going to be federal aid for venues. There's this group, Neva, that formed, it, it's a collective of, I don't know, like 2,500 independent venues, all, all the way up to the Ryman auditoriums and even some amphitheaters down to the kind of clubs that I tour and play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clubs, listening rooms, it, everyone's included in this. So maybe in a way what you're saying has happened in that way that suddenly these venues and talent buyers and promoters who are kind of separate from one another, mm-hmm. there's this collective uh, unit now, NEVA, you know, uh, right. National Independent Venue Association. That's been brought about by COVID, but unfortunately, the reality is, a lot of venues are at in danger of of folding because mm-hmm. if you know you still have certain overhead costs if you're closed for six, seven, eight months, um, it's literally like the whole circuit could be torn apart um, or large portions of it. So, and it was they had there's two acts that they were trying to include in the next uh, stimulus package: the Save Our Stages Act yeah. and the Restart Act, and they have bipartisan support. But unfortunately, if there's no stimulus package sooner than later, it's a time-sensitive thing. Yeah. I've already seen some venues starting to go under. Um, so I, I, I just, you know, um, I wonder what that other thing is. But I can say there's suddenly this coordination and collaboration mm-hmm. with all these venues that, you know, uh, agents w- would deal with all these talent buyers individually as they book their artists. But suddenly they're part of a collective. So maybe that means something in the future that there's suddenly there's more dialogue between all these venues and say, Hey, we're part of the circuit, you know? Well, there's that. And and that would provide them sort of an independent, um, answer to what live nation or AEG has, who has all of these venues that, right. You know, like it, it would be an independent like community answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, the two things I would say to that, the first I would hope is that I I truly believe, even though monetarily, um, you know, recorded music doesn't provide the same sort of benefit to artists that it used to. When when shows become possible again, I do believe that the thirst and desire to go to them will be unprecedented. And even if these venues go under, I do believe that something will rise in the ashes of them. Like I, I right. you know, like restaurant. You know, I, and I feel terrible for anyone who owns these or works at them. Like, obviously, I have friends, like friends and and coworkers, and all of those things. But like, the restaurant industry and the show industry, I guess what I would say to the the restaurants that go under is that I don't believe that people's desire to eat out will will dissipate. Right. <laughs> and I I just don't, and I don't believe that people's desire to go to shows will dissipate. If anything, it will grow and we'll find a new appreciation for it. So hopefully the people that um uh like are working in this will say, Hey, we there are shows again. Like let's, you know, there's a warehouse over there. There's gonna be a lot of real estate available. Right. There, there's a so that's the first thing. And the other thing I would think 
for artists is that like, I know that Instagram and Facebook are these great platforms to get to people, but you're giving your shit to them. Right. Oh <laughs> man, know? we could go down the rabbit hole of this conversation. <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because, oh man. Okay. So, um, I found this with a lot of musicians, except for the bigger names, the big celebrities, that Facebook and Instagram, along with YouTube, I'd say, but Facebook and Instagram especially, are cornerstones of how you get your message to your audience. Mm -hmm. But they've created a dynamic where they don't want you to get organic reach. They want to suppress that organic reach to basically leverage you to pay to reach the audience that you bring to their platform so they as, can make money. So they can make money as you <laughs> yeah. provide the content. Yeah. It's so backwards. They should be paying us to do that. And it's infuriating. And I've actually seen uh, just in the last few months or recent months, and I've seen this even with big influencers and stuff on Instagram, like the suppression is heavy now. Oh, it's crazy. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. It's getting worse. It's like yep. they're... Well, be because their algorithm can tell if even if you have a product in there that might be valuable... They're like, eh, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. It's, it's cruel, man. It's yeah. cruel. And and see, because they've monopolized that space, because I would say Twitter is different. Twitter, I don't think, um, is as much of a platform for musicians no. uh, yeah. as Facebook and Instagram are. I think there are some bigger artists or maybe some musicians who find a way to connect on Twitter. But mm -hmm. I think for more artists, it's, it's really centered around Instagram to a lesser degree, Facebook. Uh, so... It's not like you really have an alternative. You don't have this other space you can go to to say, okay, well, my content is, you know, not connecting here. Let me go to this other place to reach my audience. It's they've monopolized it and it really hurts artists in in a time now where you know, we're already in this existential crisis to try to find ways to do this. So I, I that that's something that's going to have to change or evolve. Or I don't know what's going to have to happen. But Well, I mean, like, look, somebody smarter than me is going to have this. All I ever have is ideas. I don't have a lot of follow through. I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> I only have ideas. But my idea would be like some giant manager or some vent, this group of venues or whatever, you should be able, I should be able to go to a website and say, Hey, I love Mutlu. I love Amos because I told Amos to do this. He's d fucking doing it for free on Instagram. It's whatever. He he makes him happy, you know. Yeah, and I think it's really a you know it's it's sort of a connecting cathartic thing at this for point. for sure. Absolutely, totally get that. But what I would do is say I want to go to a site and say, Hey, I like Mutlu. Um, I would love to pay him five bucks a month. And he's going to promise me he's going to do one show on this platform per week. Right. And I'm going to get to watch it. And if I pay $10 a month, then I'm going to get to pick one of the songs. If I pay $20, he's going to like, you know, send me a private message. And like, I, I want to be able to subscribe, forget subscribing to Spotify because that money's not going to that person. Right. I want to be able to subscribe to that artist. That's a great idea because rather than Spotify or Instagram, yeah, uh, which is where everyone is, which is where the audience is. But sure. Well, by the way, when we traded, you're an artist. When we traded albums to listen to, we sent Spotify links. Sent to Spotify. Each other. <laughs> I know. I know. We're sitting here saying this, and uh, yeah, and I'm posting stuff to Instagram all the time, and everyone's right. doing Instagram live stream. 
Because right now I think it's more like, oh man, this is like, this is just a way to connect. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There should be some other platform that actually pays us yes. to bring the audience there, not not the other way around, which is where we're going there. We're, we're providing the performance, the content, the videos, whatever, and they're profiting, but also undermining our ability to reach everyone. Yes. Uh, that is just, that's criminal to me. And uh, you're right. That, that's actually a great idea where you would scale up You'd say it's a tiered kind of thing. If there's well, ten, you know, ten bucks, twenty bucks, and you get different levels of content or yeah, I mean, engagement. It's, it's like pa- Patreon exists, but that's not really for musicians. It's for it's for like me. It's like it's for the rights, Ricky said. It's for content creators that are like that. But but there needs to be like a Patreon for music that is organized, and you can register for it, and I can subscribe to you, and I can support you, right. and say. Yeah, every level gets. Hey, if you twenty dollars a month, you're going to get a piece of merch every month or something right. like that. So um, maybe that's what you're talking about. Is that next thing? Um, yeah, maybe. Is that uh, you know, it has to be dedicated to music, and it has mm-hmm. to. But the question is, you have to find ways to pull people from these other spaces. Well, you, what I would do, and that's where the battle becomes, is I would use that space to push people to the other space right you know like that's the key and that that's where that's where the battle will become like that you know facebook doesn't want you to leave facebook so if you post a link you're gonna have to yeah they're gonna suppress it in the algorithm so fewer people are gonna see it right there's gonna be all these hurdles to overcome to yeah but but i think there's money to be made and i think absolutely absolutely people have people have a personal connection with uh i lost my headphone people have personal connection with um with musicians and i think that's part of why music is so good and i i i I think there's there's something there absolutely absolutely uh do you want to talk about the records yeah yeah let's jump in man so why don't we do so the here's the uh the three records we're doing uh mine my pick is silver chairs diorama uh moots is donny hathaway's live and uh, the listener's record is Kate is Matt Pierce, who is a Ricky listener. Uh, Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. So you want to start with mine? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, so I'll give a little. What we'll do is we'll give a little like sort of mini bio on the record, and then we'll, then we'll talk about it. So Silverchair. Um, I've said that Butch Walker is my favorite singular artist. Silverchair is my favorite band ever. And uh, people laugh about that because most of what people remember from Silverchair is one song from when they were teenagers uh, in the 90s. But uh, Diorama is their masterpiece to me. came out in 02 and the reason that you probably don't know about it is that when it came they switched labels when it came out label wasn't particularly happy with it but uh daniel johns the singer had a an an illness reactive arthritis that pretty much prevented him from touring the united states so even this album though this album got very big in australia where they're from nothing ever happened here Hmm. so they're their debut was called Frog Stomp, which was huge, sold a few million copies. They were like 15, 16 years old when they recorded it. Uh, sounded very 
Soundgarden-y at the time, very Nirvana-y. Australians actually get, the way that they get defensive about Ben Simmons and jump shooting, they get defensive (laughs) about comparing, I've noticed this, comparing Silverchair to grunge bands. Really? (laughs) They do. It's very very interesting. But I'm not saying that they they were inspired by these grunge bands because they actually came out at a similar time. Uh, they're probably inspired by whoever inspired those grunge bands, but that's that's sort of what it sounds like. And then there was Freak, which is the follow up, which was, I, I guess, like sort of like messier uh, than Frog Stomp was. And then there was an album called Neon Ballroom, which is the bridge sort of between the first two Silver Chair records and what uh, Diorama would become. So, so a little more history. Uh, so they became really, really, really big in Australia. But their parents made them go to regular school. So uh, it became the same way that uh, famous people, when they're young, are destroyed here. Uh, They were destroyed in Australia. Daniel Johns, who was the singer, became pretty depressed and miserable, uh, ended up anorexic, which is something that Hmm. you don't hear about with men very often. And uh, those those albums, uh, Frog Stomp and then Freak and then Neon Ballroom, were actually kind of like... Uh, depressed when you when you hear the lyrics diorama he decided he wanted to write a sort of a a positive record a bright record um and there were sort of like beach boys influences and (laughs) and beatles and pet sounds and that sort of thing and then uh david uh buttrell uh produced the record and the orchestration was by a very famous guy named van dyke parks who has does has done this for a lot of albums and um, so the record comes out. Ultimately, I actually have my ticket to go see them. I think it was at um, not the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was Irving Plaza. No, it was smaller. Um, it was named after the area that it was in. It's not Gramercy. It's not Hammerstein. Oh, Bowery. Uh, Bowery. Bowery Ballroom. Bowery Ballroom. Oh yeah, that's a great place, man. Yeah, yeah, I actually saw Noah Cyrus at the Bowery, and I was supposed to see Silverchair at the Bowery. The tour got. Um, canceled because of the reactive arthritis thing the album basically got buried and they didn't release another album until 07 so that's the album um i fucking love it because it is almost i love uh big hooks Mm -hmm. i love production like you know my favorite def leppard album is hysteria i love things that (laughs) sound big and bright um I do love sort of pained lyrics. Like I like emotion and it, it seems like there's a lot of emotion in, in the record. Um, like I, I don't rem- and I loved this band until this point. So I remember when I worked at WISP trying to sell our, our program director on the neon ballroom albums, that it was more than like what it was. And then this album came out and it was everything that it felt like they were building toward. Um, so I just fucking love it. Um, so that's, uh, that's the, that's the, the story of, uh, of, of this record. And I will say that my, probably my crowning moment in all of music radio was, it was 2007 and I was working in Chicago and Silverchair on their, their final record, uh, called Young Modern put out a single that wasn't pushed to radio. It just showed up on the internet called The Greatest View. And somebody gave it to me when I was in Chicago, found it on the internet. And we put it on the radio immediately and started playing it. And we booked them 
to play our Christmas show, even though they weren't playing over here. Um, and I got to book them for a concert. And I remember them playing The Greatest View, which oh, is man. a song from Diorama. And I was just like, man, I fucking did it. I booked my favorite band and That's played a awesome, concert. That's awesome, Yeah, yeah. Did you get to so, hang and kind of interact with them uh, so I, much? Yeah, I, I met them at Lollapalooza. They played Lollapalooza in Chicago that summer before they played it in December uh, with us. And I have a picture of me at the after party with Daniel Johns. Um, so... A, a little bit, you know, like I, I met them at Lala and then I met them when they played our show. Like I, uh, so, but I didn't get to like, I, I would love to have, we'll never, it'll be tough to get Daniel Johns on. He doesn't do much. Um, what's it called? Much, uh, much press or, and he's become, that's like a whole different thing, really? but I would love to get Chris or Ben on the pod to talk about all of this because I, th- I feel like now with perspective as a, true grown up. I would love to talk to them about it. So I'm yeah. curious what, what you thought of it, because I, I think we are coming from very different places musically and we'll yeah. find out where you're coming from. Um, but I'm curious what you thought of it. Well, I loved it. Um, ah, I'm, that's I'm, good. I'm one of those people that you were saying had a certain perception of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember uh, Frog Stomp mm-hmm. and I actually have a very specific history with that because I've oh, discovered, really? I discovered that in a small town, this is so weird. Uh, in a small town called Dole in France, right near the Swiss border, because I was in an exchange program. Really? And there was this kid, Mathieu, who came and stayed with my family. And then I went and stayed with his. And his, uh, it was a really nice place. They were really nice people. And his brother was like playing guitar. And I was just, you know, I came to this late. I was, uh, I guess, a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, Starting to play a little guitar, but didn't really know anything. I knew I could sing, but I wasn't doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. And his brother was really good. And his I was talking to his brother one day, and he was like, do you know this uh, Silva Chea? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, who? Because like, I was speaking French, but we weren't. He, he didn't speak good. We were having a hard time communicating. I remember he was like, do you know? He was like showing me all these albums. Like He was ripping these riffs. I was like, damn, this kid is good. And he's like, do you know these Battery Nirvana, Foo Fighters? And, <laughs> and he was like going through all his records that he loved, but he loved Silverchair. And uh, I remember listening to that record with him and the, the kid who was sort of the, um, I was part of the program with Mathieu. Like that was like, I, I remember listening to it there in Dole, France. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I really got into that record. And then for whatever reason, I didn't really keep up with them. So then hearing this and kind of absorbing this album, I'm like... It's so different. Whoa, yeah. like this is not the same band. Although there are moments where uh, they go back to that earlier sound or they mm-hmm. touch on it. Like um, I think One May, One Way Mule or The Lever. Yeah. You feel those heavier guitars come back into the sun, angular kind of riffs. So uh, he said, if I could give a, a plug for it. Th- so there's a, a podcast that just came out that is basically documenting and uh, biograph bi- biography. I don't even know the word of, of all the silver chair records. And it's called hmm. too much is not enough. It's really, really interesting. And he did two diorama so big. He did two pods on it, <laughs> but there's a quote from Daniel Johns that said basically that he feels like he owes the people who were with, he changed and their listeners changed, but he does feel like 
at least at this point, and this was O two, so he was probably early twenties at this mm-hmm. point. Um, he felt like he owed them songs, you know, and not that he didn't like those songs. Interesting, and, but he had to put himself. He said he was just like sometimes you just want a rock song, right? And um, and that's that's what the Lever and and One Way Mule were were like his sort of gift to the people who had stuck around with them since the beginning. That's interesting because when you listen, because I sort of absorbed it as a whole piece because that's what it feels mm-hmm. like. Yeah, It doesn't feel like a song where you isolate, a record where you isolate songs. No, it feels yeah. like a record where he had a vision of what it should be. Mm-hmm. And then it's almost like a detour when he goes into those songs. Because you know, the, one of the most telling parts of the record to me was at the very end, the last track after all these years, which is an amazing song. Just amazing. A, yeah. An incredible melody. I, mean, I was singing that. And after all these years, forget about all the troubles. And after all these years, forget about all the oh, After all these years. I mean, I just, that's so good. That's like. That's can, just, I, can I tell you, by the way, the fact that you love this makes me feel so good. <laughs> it really does. Well, that's it what we're me, talking about. Now yeah, we're now yeah. we're real. I mean, because I was I wasn't sure what to think. Yeah, because I know Frog Stomp and I did like that at a moment in time. Mm-hmm. But man, like, well, you, you touched on the Van Dyke Parks and the Beach Boys. That's what I heard mm-hmm. um, right away, like even right out of the gate on Across the Night on the first track. He's definitely channeling brian wilson vibes i just even the some of the melody moves not saying that he's copying them but you could hear brian wilson writing those kind of melodies And then when I saw, okay, Van Dyke Parks was involved in this. Mm-hmm. Okay, you see there's actually a connection there. There's like a real musical connection there. But um, I just think uh, I listened to it three times through. And I, and I yeah, because I, 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 it's one of those records where you don't get everything the first time you hear it. And you I'll, really, I'll, you have to commit I'll, to going all the way through a few times. I'll tell you, as somebody who has lived with this record for 18 years, there were th- there were things that I didn't get until I listened to that pod and went back to it. Like I've, hmm. the reason I brought this up now is because I've been back into it. Um, so even things now, years later, um, like there was one thing that he brought up, and I never knew this about. And just a, a, a sort of minor thing: this was the first album where Daniel wrote all the songs. So, really? Huh. Yeah. So Ben, the drummer, used to be a real like writing influence. And in the middle of like Neon Ballroom, he wrote a couple of songs that were like super personal. And he basically came back to the band and was like, if we're going to do Silver Chair, I'm going to write the song. So that's what uh, this was. So this is his uh, vision, basically. This right. record is his vision. Yeah. It's like if, you, if you're a Guns N' Roses fan, it's like the way that Estranged and November Rain were like, Axel, like saying that this is what I want to do. That that was um, uh, this record. I can't even remember what you were saying. Uh, Oh well, there was one moment that was telling because I listened to it three times. Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And uh, it's at the very end, the last track after all Mm -hmm. these years ends. Then there's several several minutes of silence. I'm like, what's going on here? Wait, wait, there's something more here. I know there's something coming. Yeah. And it's like a minute and a half of 
just this beautiful this beautiful piano piece, mm-hmm. which I guess is a reinterpolation in parts of after all these after years. After all these years, yeah. But it kind of okay, like that's how he conceived. Like it sh- it gave you a little insight at the very end. You can see that he sat down at the piano and conceptualized this mm-hmm. and had sort of an orchestral mindset to. I mean, because writing can go in so many different ways. Sometimes you just it's a raw melody, it's a raw lyric. And you're not thinking about the scope of what it is, but it feels to me like these songs are written kind of like the way Brian Wilson would write, where he could already picture musically the arc of this thing. Yeah. And that's what you feel. And I mean, it's really, it's a masterpiece. I mean, I was kind of blown away. I wasn't expecting that from Silverchair. Like, whoa, man, this guy's like a hell of a songwriter. Like, and he's a great singer too. Yeah. Uh, You know, and uh, I don't know. It's like, he's kind of like almost like an unheralded, genius in some ways because maybe because because he fell prey to the same things i know he had some health issues i didn't even realize that yeah which is unfortunate but it sounds like the label turned on them and it's like oh you're going to do something different uh yeah. well we're not going to put the you know the big money behind your single we're not going to roll it out to radio the same way yeah uh, which is unfortunate it, that clash you know between art and commerce yeah it was, they went to atlantic and atlantic like i guess wasn't happy with it and i i listened to the interview with david uh Butcherell about it he was just like if they had just told daniel that he probably would have just gone and written a normal rock record and saved this one for next time but nobody ever said anything to him uh, about it and like um there there was one thing and then we'll we'll move on to your record i'm glad that you love this i uh, Young Modern is the album that came after this, which is, um, I would say, more weird Beatlesy than the, if this is Beach Boysy, that the album that came after, and that was the last album they put out. Daniel Johns has done a lot of solo stuff since then. But one of the things that um, I never noticed about him is that like he doesn't rhyme his lyrics all that often. Mm-hmm. And like most of the lyrics don't rhyme. And when they do, it's noticeable and seems to have more like gravity. And I, I never noticed it before. And you think of all lyrics like rhyming and uh, there's a lot <laughs> that don't in there. And he, he uses a lot of weird, um, like a lot of, after all these years, definitely seems like. That's a, a classic ballad kind of yeah. thing. But and he, it, it's still nonlinear it, though, a little. It, all his non-linear, songs are nonlinear, you know. But it does seem like it's about the the arc of them and him hmm. as a person, you know, and, and looking back. But, uh, but I, I don't know, man, like I, I texted when I was listening to this podcast and listening to the record again, we have a, a friend named Jason who uh, works with AU at billboard. And I texted him and I'm like, I don't know, man, I think Silverchair just might be one of those great bands that nobody knows about. I was like, <laughs> I, I just, I, I feel really mad that they're underappreciated. Uh, this was like two days ago. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great, man. Really kind of a revelation, honestly. <laughs> wow, that's cool, man. Um, so your record. Donny Hathaway, Hathaway Live. Um This record is, it's my favorite live album with uh, Bill Withers live at Carnegie Hall being second. But just to give a little background, you know, Donny Hathaway, one of the great soul singers of all time. Tragically, his, you know, career and his life shut, uh, uh, cut very short. Um, but this record, 
represented him at his peak. Uh, it came out after, right after his second album. Uh, he had Everything Is Everything and then his uh, self-titled second album, Donny Hathaway. And this is him at his peak, recorded live in two different venues. It was late August of 1971 um, with uh, just an incredible band. The first half of the side A is at the Troubadour in L.A., Mm-hmm. And the second half is at the bitter end in in New York. And to me, I mean, this record, it, it's like I just, every time you listen, like you're dropping into a guy who's really just, uh, just, just so dialed in with everything he's doing. He, he's right off his second album. I think he had just released his first single with Roberta Flack. And they had that record coming out uh, shortly after that. He was doing his first soundtrack. He's a guy, he had been in the business for a long time, I think working behind the scenes with different artists, but, you know, was really emerging right at that time when you had soul music was just evolving. Like it was pushing the envelope musically, lyrically. You had Stevie Wonder, who was just on the cusp of making music in my mind and talking book. Marvin Gaye had just released What's Going On. And I think uh, in some ways, not as many people know Donny Hathaway because, Mm -hmm. because he... Um, because he his career was short-lived and his life was sadly short-lived. He, he battled demons his whole life. He had suffered from severe depression. That's ultimately he, you know, in one of the great one of the horrible musical tragedies, just, you know, committed suicide, jumped out of uh, the place that he was staying in New York. So that's I think people know that that tragic story. Uh, but it's like he never fully got the chance to put together the catalog that some of his contemporaries did. But with the few records he made. He made such an impact. And I think this record, this live album is sort of uh, in many ways his crowning achievement because I think he had three uh, studio albums. He did the record with Roberta Flack and then he did the soundtrack album. Um, so it's a small body of work, but this this album I think was right, was, was at, right at the moment where he was really, um, you know, you could see the trajectory of where he was going to go. He's a great writer. But I think at this point, he was even more of a great interpreter. When you look at the tracks on this, like uh, he does a John Lennon song. He does a Carole King song. Mm-hmm. He does a, a Marvin Gaye song. And um, I always come back to the, as much as I love the original versions of, you know, you've got a friend and jealous guy, what's going on? I always come back to the Donny Hathaway rendition because he had an ability like few singers could to take a song that everyone recognized, but make it something totally his own and then when you look at the players that he had on this record i mean um uh, phil upchurch lead guitar on the troubadour record uh, side of the record cornell dupree lead guitar on the bitter end side of the record and then mike howard on guitar willie weeks on drums fred uh sorry willie weeks on bass fred white on drums earl deruin on congos when you look those guys up those are some of the greatest and most enduring sidemen session players so when you hear that record you hear these guys playing in an intimate setting that I don't think I've never heard anything captured quite like that, where there's so mm-hmm. much connection between the performers and, and, and the audience. Uh, and I, you know, it's just, uh, it's one of those albums that uh, it's, it's, it, I can't really even compare it to anything else. And I would say it's more satisfying to me than maybe Donnie's studio records because you got a glimpse into like, man, this guy in a room with a small group of people in the room with these amazing players, like it's transcendent.
I just think, um, you know, I wish more people knew. I feel like I feel like I think people know him. People really love soul music, but I don't think people know him the way they know Stevie or or Marvin Gaye or Al Green. Uh, but I think I think he's right there in that same conversation with all those great singers. So much like you, I like when you sent the record over, <laughs> I was just like it had it had three quick strikes against it. Like <laughs> looking at it. Uh, my first strike was don't like live records. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Good thing I thing, picked one first for her first five. Yeah, but, but but wait, but wait, because I I like I'll 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 say I like I I liked it a lot a lot a lot. Uh, the first thing I don't like live records. The second thing I don't like old music. Like <laughs> I, I have this thing where like if something came out before I liked I loved music, which is like eighty six eighty seven. I just I have trouble connecting to it because I don't remember the time and like it's just a I, I I feel like I need this time emotional connection to something to really like mm. it and like the mark for me is always like appetite for destruction I was like <laughs> well was it before appetite Meh. um and then uh, the other thing was like I um. L- Older soul music is just like not my thing. It's fine if it's on. I like it. Like it's fine, but it's not. I wouldn't like pick to listen to it. Right. If we're talking about like R and B, if you're talking about Babyface or oh yeah, like but any you know yes, nineties, give it to me. Oh yeah. But like older, not into it. Hmm. Um. So I put this on, and I there's there's two ways I like to listen to music for the first time is headphones or the car. Because I can like sort of immerse myself in it. And I was listening in the car and like it was cool. And there was like the uh, I'm, I'm looking at the track list. Like the ghetto is like really long and a lot of like instrumentation. It's a like, jam. It's basically an yeah, extended jam. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, ah, this is cool. But there was when You've Got a Friend came on <laughs> and like it's really sung mostly at least half by the crowd. Right. But but it's not a like the crowd is so important in live records. Um, there's a I remember there's a what's the Bob Dylan one where the crowd like turns on him, the famous one. Oh, is this uh, from Newport? Is this yeah. from? Oh yeah, that was uh, and the band was backing him up. Yeah yeah. So <laughs> so I don't I don't like Dylan, but I was I was reading a classic rock book by Steve Hyden, and he wrote about the story of that. Like what was going on there? And I was like, oh. And I went and I listened to it. And I was like, oh, this is like cool. And I still don't like his music. But like what is happening here is cool. It was a very punk rock thing he did there. Yes. You know? <laughs> very. So I'm listening to this. And it almost sounded like, it reminds me of a, a like a Butch Walker live recording. It almost sounds like he's in the middle of them. Right. And and they and he's not singing for them. It's almost like it's a party, and he's leading it, and they're there with him. Yep. And it was it's at that moment in the record where 
most live records just sound like recorded records with crowd sound effects in them. And I, I don't like if I want a greatest hits, I'll just listen to greatest hits. Right. I, like, why I, I why worry about the overdubbed element or something? Yeah. A million times over. But this album is um, immersive in the live experience and emotional in the live experience. And like it was that moment in the record where I I could go. So I started it over Mm -hmm. and I went back to the beginning stuff and I had an image in my mind of like what the club looked like. Um, you know, I've been to the Troubadour, um, but yeah. like, but like what was happening in there. And I felt like I, I saw like this sort of sweaty show yeah. <laughs> where everybody was into it and loving it and there for the same purpose. And it made me love the album. Uh, you know, like, I think part of it could be too, the, the idea that live music is not there right now. Right. And being able to like put you back in a place where, um, where you're around other people, like that many other people, but I don't know. Like, uh, it is a more than any other live record I think I've ever heard. Um, you can see it. Yeah, that's Do you know what, what I mean. That is exactly what I love about it. And on you've got a friend that happens. Yeah, it's like he's not playing a show to an audience that's passively listening. They're part of the show. Yes. You know, they're in the show with him. They're, and they sound amazing. I mean, they're they're like pitch perfect with the, with they the fucking sing-along. love, But they they love it. It's like he is singing their their high school fight song or something. Right. Like like do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they they are it does remind me of uh dashboard. Like if you go to a dashboard confessional show, like it sort of became ridiculous toward the end because he would just play a chord and then just like back away. And it, it wasn't like immersed. It was performative instead of immersive. Like this is, right. Um, this is, this is a, a, just a, this is a really cool record and made me appreciate him, but maybe, and made me appreciate the, this kind of music uh, in a way that I hadn't before. That's, I think that's interesting to hear because yeah, there's something that happens on this record that you wouldn't necessarily get maybe if you listen to one of Donnie's like studio records. Mm-hmm. They would sound great. They sound great. But yep. this is, and I think this was his only gold record as a solo artist. So that says something. Oh, really? This was yeah. the thing that really transcended for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess it is kind of bittersweet because that's where I live. That's what I love to do. And to not be able to do it now, you listen to this, you're like, oh man, that's, that thing he's getting to, you're always striving for that. That thing that happens yeah. with him and the band and the audience. I felt that from time to time on stage where you're just you're you're not just giving a performance. The audience is in on this thing with you and you're you're in it together. And I guess that's part of like it's a on a personal level what connects me to it. And it's it's kind of bittersweet now because we don't know when you know, clubs are going to be the last thing to come back. It's going to, you said, putting a bunch of people together in a room close to each other, sweating, yeah, drinking, talking. Like, Seems crazy. When is that going to, Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. Will, will it, sometimes I'm like, will it ever come back that way? Will we, it will. Yeah. You know, my worst days, I'm like, oh man, like that, that's like, I don't want that to go away. I, I, I want, can, you can know. Can I be honest with you in a, like a, this is going to sound horrible, like, and I, I don't mean it the way that it will come out. Like, I am so 
desperate for it, <laughs> like I feel like I would fucking risk it. Like, I, like that, that's <laughs> yeah. and that sounds irres- I'm, I don't say that in an irresponsible no, way. No, I understand. I I, it's I not irresponsible. Do it, but like I see when when like there's a lot online of like people shaming like groups or like whether they're at a show whether it's the chain smokers in long island or whatever the fuck it is and like i look at it and i go i don't know man like there there is something to saying like you know it's like that staying up the extra two hours and when you know you got to get up early in the morning or having (laughs) the one extra drink or or whatever it is like I, I sort of feel like if it were in my backyard, if there were a show with a bunch of like sweaty people with a band I like, <laughs> I would probably go, eh, yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll go I'll for go. it. Yeah. 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 No, I understand that feeling because, yeah, there's, of course, there's the safety of all this and doing the right thing on that. But, yeah, it's like I, I understand that emotion because it's like we miss it, you know? So and, bad. And yeah. it's a horrible feeling to think, ah, I don't know when it's going to be safe to do this again. And uh, especially when it, when you see that it's actually kind of, I guess my fear is, and a fear a lot of people have, is like it, with the situation we're in now. Does that mean it's not going to come back the same way? Right. Uh, be, from a from a economic standpoint. Oh right, right. right. You know, and um, that I guess that's uh, that's 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 something that a lot of people are grappling with. But I hear what you're saying. So sometimes, like, man, I want to put all this aside and just do it, man. I just want to go play. I want to. I want to feel that thing again, you know, because it's like it's almost like I'm getting so far away from it now. It's like I got to remember what it feels like to be in person doing it, you know, dude, in a really morbid. And then we'll move on to the next record. <laughs> like you remember when AIDS happened, right? Of course. Well, I was quite young, but I yeah, do I was like, yeah. Well, how old are you? I'm, I'm 41. OK, so I'm older than you. That, that three or four years can make a big difference. Like all I know is like. People kept having sex. Have, and, and, like, yeah. and, and by the way, AIDS was like, if you, this is not, it was not COVID, you know, like, like AIDS, if you got it, you were dead. No. Yeah. That was, you know, yeah. like, and people kept going. Like, I, I think more, I think people, uh, I, I think it'll be back, you know, like, right. and I think people more than ever have short memories. And I, I think, um, I think it'll, I think it'll, and be maybe back. there's it. a sweet spot between where we are now, where we might be in six months where, yep. uh, there is, you know, there are therapeutics, there's some sorts mm-hmm. of vaccines out there. I mean, there will come a spot where you, you can walk in with some certainty to feel like I'll probably be okay. Yeah. I think once we get there, then people, then the consumer confidence, quote unquote, will go back up. I'll be the first one back. I know Mike of Rights Ricky Sanchez will probably take an extra two years, um, but uh, but I'll, I go back and forth between those two things. But it's like because I'm the guy that wants to be on stage, connected with yeah. people. It's like oh man, it's a very conflicted thing, man. Yeah. Um, let's get to our listener submitted record. So this came from Matt Pierce, who submitted it to the Rights Ricky Sanchez Carl Landry Record Club. So he's part of this. Right on. Uh, it is Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. which came out in 1985. Um, Pitchfork rates it the fourth best record of the 80s. Wow. Uh, When I was reading about it, it it made me remember two sides of an album. 
the first side was called Hounds of Love. The second side was the ninth wave side. So the idea of, I know if you're young, the idea of two <laughs> sides of an album is, uh, you know, it's funny. I have a record player in here and I bought a bunch of vinyl and I realized like the experience of listening to vinyl kind of sucks in that you have to get up after four songs, um, <laughs> which is something that I'm not used to. It hasn't been in a while. Um, uh, I thought about Tori Amos when I listened to this, like as sort of like what it spurned, you know, the mid eighties, you're talking about Depeche Mode, uh, you're talking about Tears for Fears, like all that sort of new Eurythmics. Wave. I was thinking Eurythmics a little bit. Eurythmics, totally. You know. Another female, yeah, totally Eurythmics. Uh, NME had it as the 48th greatest album of all time. Wow, really? Y yeah. So <laughs> here's the thing. I The only Kate Bush song I knew knew was Running Up That Hill, which is on this, this record. Um, and what is the cover that I really like of that? Um, I'll look it up uh, at some point. Like, so here's what I like in this album too, when I was listening to it. And let's see if you can relate. I'll bring back a specific example. One of my favorite movies from my youth is The Lost Boys. Never seen The Lost Boys? I think I saw it a long time ago, but I'm hazy on it. So Kiefer Sutherland, The Quarries, it's basically a movie about teenage vampires. <laughs> Not like Twilight. These were vampires that like killed people and like whatever. I love that movie. I still love that movie. I remember showing it to my now wife when we were dating. She's eight years younger than me. And we were watching it and like 10 minutes into it. I love this movie, but when I was watching it with somebody new who didn't go through it and didn't see it when I saw it, every part felt longer and like every the good parts didn't seem as good. Like, and I kept saying like, Oh, wait for this part. And I could feel her not liking it. So I'm listening to this record and it feels to me, and I, there were things I liked about it. Overall, it felt to me dated in a way that if I didn't live through it, I, I, I couldn't feel what was important about it, I guess, or, why it was great. There were songs I liked. I like Running Up the Hill, a song called Big Sky, a song called, a song called Cloud Busting. I like Cloud I Busting, like. yeah. That's cool too. Cloud Busting was cool. I could hear that what she was doing, especially as a female at the time, was probably like pretty cool. But I, I couldn't get into the vibe felt so 1985 for me. <laughs> and because I didn't listen to it in 1985, it it just seemed like dated to me. Uh, I, for me, I, like I, I couldn't get into it in that way. There were things about it I could appreciate, but I could I wasn't into it, into it. I think I'm in the same place where... It's um it's not necessarily the kind of record I would, you know, engage with on my own accord necessarily, but I could appreciate musically some of the things she was doing. I like that she's adventurous. I mean, there's that one song, yeah. uh, what's that one called? Um, it's in this sort of song suite, the side B. I guess it's uh, Waking the Witch.
yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that's like that's like a soundtrack. It's like in, in a horror movie or something. That's what I was going to say. It felt like a, a horror movie soundtrack. It's <laughs> a weird like yeah. gremlin kind of voice that comes in. I was like, whoa, she like she went there. Mm-hmm. And and she does have a, a very distinctive voice. I guess my first introduction to her was on Don't Give Up with Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah. She sounds so amazing on that amazing song i love it. Yeah. peter gabriel guy? yeah 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 definitely uh, definitely yeah. we'll have to delve saw, into maybe some of that yeah i saw the uh when he did so maybe six years ago or seven years oh, ago did man. that whole tour i went and saw it at wells fargo center it was so good yeah that's a this, masterpiece and she's amazing on that and then i remember yeah. maxwell had covered one of her tunes this woman's work okay uh and it was on one of his live records mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go but i guess i didn't really know her music in depth, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a challenging listen. I'd say the side A is the more accessible side, mm-hmm. where you have cloud busting of these other songs, and I think she's purposely theatrical, which mm-hmm. I kind of appreciate. Like again, it doesn't necessarily just move me. Like doesn't get you here. Like doesn't like the music that really moves you. You know, it doesn't. You don't get that feeling. It's like you're challenging yourself to listen a little bit, but she there is something interesting about what she does i I can't it's i i couldn't mistake her for anyone else necessarily her voice is pretty distinctive and i like the fact that she did sort of the abbey road thing where she put the songs that were maybe a little more digestible up front and then she second second and then side b is like whoa what yeah there's like something ice that ice song uh (laughs) that song is really bizarre too i mean there's a couple really just strange tunes under ice or something like that it's like this really staccato kind of like melody yeah i'm trying to get the (laughs) the 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 track the track is um under yeah it's under ice under ice yeah Yeah, Yeah. so uh, it's yeah it's a conflicting thing it's like it doesn't necessarily move me it's not necessarily the kind of thing i'd gravitate towards but there is something artistically interesting about it uh, so I, I it's, it's kind of I can see both sides. I can appreciate it within what it is. Also, some of the production is does feel dated. That really yes. heavily, but she does it well though. The synth element is cool, but it's like okay, it puts it in a very specific time. You know what it makes me think of is like when you watch a horror movie from 1985, it looks like it's from 1985. Right. <laughs> like if if you go and watch Alien or or evil dead or something you're like well what the fuck is going on here you know like like if you watch it today having never seen it before or movies from the 80s like it looks like it's from that time but a drama from that time can get away with like you know like the the like your record that music uh i think has inspired and held up in a way that this like doesn't at least right. the production of it maybe not the songs themselves right production wise it's yeah it's very it is it's it's locked in a place mm-hmm. i the the cover that you should listen to um is there's a band called placebo um really cool band but they covered running up that hill hmm. and they did it spookier than she did and slower and i think uh it it makes me appreciate the song in a different way. I think covers can do that. Like I, I really love, I've said this a bunch of times that like, I think the biscuits cover of behind blue eyes is better than the Who's version. <laughs> um, I got to check that out. Was it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really good, but like I, it, it made me appreciate the who version because I heard the song in a different way. So I think the cover of running up that hill is really cool. So I, I appreciate the uh, suggestion. If you, yes, um, 
If you've got suggestions, uh, a uh, Carl Landry Record Club suggestion, leave it in the Apple Podcast um, uh, reviews right there. And this is this like wraps up the first one. I actually think now that we've done it, it's like an hour and five minutes long. <laughs> we're we're probably not going to attach an interview to this one. We'll start the interview ones on the second from here, one. from here on. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, was a good introductory kind of kind of thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that's it. That's the very cool, man. Debut yeah. debut episode. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. It took the very just end. a very yeah very brief cameo. Yeah. yeah. You know there are Ricky people like that are forty five minutes in. They're like, "When's he gonna do it? What are these guys he- doing here? He's talking about these guys talking about music. These guys do like a lot of songs, I guess." Yeah. <laughs> um, he might turn I, up once in a while. Once in a yeah, while. Yeah, come on, come on. A weekly pot'll be weekly. Pot'll be weekly. Yes, pot'll indeed. Weekly. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, support an artist you like and uh, listen to music and send us suggestions and that's it. Thanks, y'all. Uh, all right, we'll talk to you next time. Later.